This morning I'm going to talk about politics. And if that sounds risky to you, last week I spoke on food, which is far more dangerous in Ithaca. So I feel okay. And it's obviously not the job of a church or the pastor to speak on a specific political policy. There's a barrier there that the church shouldn't take on. But it is the job of the church to help and to nurture Christians to think politically. What does it mean to be a citizen, to be a member of a community? How should I act? How should I vote? How do we bring about laws that are for good and for justice? And as we enter into Lent, we're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus, and we're thinking about just and civil society. And so I put that before us today in this journey. Later in this year, I've talked about the fact we're going to have some sessions to encourage us to think wisely, to think Christianly, to dialogue well together as political agents in God's world. I start our thought back in this story with Solomon. Samara got a surprise. I switched the readings this morning so we could hear this story again of Solomon and the two prostitutes because it's such a pivotal passage for helping us grasp and understand what Jesus is doing in the gospel. Uh, In this passage, Solomon has just become king. He succeeded his father, David, um, after some assassinations and some maneuverings by his mother. It's not a clean succession. And Solomon has this moment where God meets him in a vision and he prays for wisdom. And God grants him wisdom because, and wealth because he didn't ask for wealth. And so there's this enormous expectation as this king takes the throne. And the first event that's recorded is this story of two prostitutes that come before the king. Now, it's really important to understand about 1 Kings that we may underestimate. We may know the story. But the writers of 1 Kings and 2 Kings and Samuel and Numbers and Genesis, they're storytellers, but they know the law. Many scholars think they were legal experts, not storytellers as their origin and their, and their life. They know the laws. And so when we get to this story in particular, somebody who knows the law and its power and its limits and its difficulties is telling us something about what it means to be king, what it means to live politically. And so the fact that these two prostitutes are before the king, the story doesn't say it, but that can only happen if they've already gone through the system of the courts, the judges that stand at the gates, and none of the courts, the appellate courts and the supreme courts, have been able to answer this case. That's how difficult it is. And so now these two women stand before Solomon. Two women, one child deceased, one alive, and both claim to be the mother. How do you solve it? And the insight, I think, or many scholars think, about the legal writer is here is the law can't give you justice. I think that's such an important thing for Americans to realize today. You push bills through Congress and they don't give you justice. They hardly look like what they were when they went into the system. People and good decisions and wisdom have to bring about justice. All the law can do is point and help. Two violations are here. There is um, theft and there is false testimony. But how do you get it? None of the judges know how to get at justice. And so that's Solomon's task in the moment. And here's his solution. Bring me a sword. And then he restates the situation, the case, and says cut the child in half and give half to one mother and half to the other. I know we hear that story so often, but that's a pretty extreme matter to go about justice. Now think again about what the legal writer is doing for us. What has Solomon just done? He's made a bluff. 
which is a lie about murder. It's not a very um, uh, practical way or normal way that we might think of of getting into this case, but he threatens murder. And he draws out the liar who's willing to murder. That old proverb, it takes a thief to catch a thief. Solomon has understood that the law has this power in it, as Jesus knew, to unravel, to point to, enlighten our moral inclinations. The woman who is willing to lie and steal a live child from another mother will be willing to murder, and so I'll take on both roles and align myself morally with that mother. And when she sees the space to move into, the murder space, she is drawn to it. But the truthful mother cares for the life of the child and would rather lose it. And so all the people realize that Solomon has brought about a just judgment because he's able to get inside and apply the law. That's his skill that the other judges didn't have. I realize you may be sitting here and thinking, I've said Solomon lied. And if you're uncomfortable with that, you may not want to read the rest of the Old Testament (laughs) because God's position on this is very unusual. The um, Hebrew midwives hide the children, the Hebrew boys, and they lie, it says very clearly, to the Egyptians. And God honors them and gives them favor. And then Rahab hides the Hebrew spies in her home and lies to the Canaanites and God honors her and blesses her house. And there's something there I'm not trying to tell us we lie. What I'm trying to illustrate for you is the Old Testament's aware of of what they often call a layered thickness to the law. The law is not just some shallow um, command. It has depth to it. It points to character. It points us to bringing about justice. And Solomon realizes inside that law against lying and against theft, there's a heart that drives people to certain behaviors, and he can get at it by a bluff. Well, I tell that story about Solomon so that we can get to Jesus. In the centuries following Solomon, a tradition developed among the Jews, these Pharisees and legal experts, and they debated the law. That's what they did publicly. The whole Talmud that we have today is debates on the Jews about laws. And so the Jews would, um, when they would debate laws, it was a practice they called halakha. And um, they described halakha as fencing the law. You, You debate the law so that it does what it's supposed to do and not what it's not supposed to do. And Solomon's a story is kind of a, story, a kind of halakha or haggadah. It's a narrative that helps us get at what the law is trying to do. How do you apply law in society? And the Jews did this endlessly. It created this 76-volume Talmud. And so when we get to Jesus in Matthew, he's doing halakha. All six laws he talks about today are laws in the Jewish rabbi's discussion of his day. We have them all written down now. They've talked about murder and adultery and divorce and oaths and about retaliation. I skipped that one because the reading was long and about love. And they debated, what do these laws do? How do we keep them? And one of the bywords or the keywords of this method called halakha was using the phrase, you heard it said, but I say. Well, Rabbi Meir said, but I say. And that's precisely what Jesus is doing. He's taking their tradition and getting into the middle of it, as Solomon did, to bring about a vision of the law of moral living, of what it means to live in the public life. And he takes them on one by one through their laws and finds their weakness and finds their failures. 
and points that out to them. This isn't the space to go through these six laws. It would take a very long time. And in fact, New Testament scholars are highly um, mixed and debated about how to apply these. Does Jesus mean no adult or no divorce whatsoever, or is he exaggerating? Does he mean we should pluck our eye and cut off our hand? They're very, very difficult sayings, and Jesus is very skilled. But I want to come back to this question at the beginning. What does it mean to be politically active Christian in our world today, in a secular world? How should we think, how should we act as Jesus did in this environment? Social scientists, I realize some of you work in this area, but I think it's pretty overwhelming now that the main reason that most of us form our political opinions on ethical issues is based upon our social surroundings. Our friends believe something about some political issue, whether it's education or medicine or the military, and then we fall into those beliefs. And we tend to convince ourselves that we've done our moral duty and thought through the issues together, but I think the psychologists are pretty persuasive that we simply are human nature is to comply and to, and to conform to those around us. I move in very secular academic circles, and I always find that moving, that shifting, that softening that goes back and forth depending on who you're surrounded by. And as Christians, we find ourselves in that position. Look at Paul in 1 in Corinthians 3 today. Some say, I am Paul. Some say, I am Apollos. Just two people creating camps and then arguing themselves into division. And I suggest to you we have done that today as our church life recedes in the public life. Politics has filled its place. And we're of the cult of Trump or the cult of social justice. And we end up not being able to talk or think morally together. What would it look like? As we go into Lent and think through this year, I want us to think, what would it look like if we stopped borrowing the language of our culture around politics and thought as Christians that we fence the law and thought, what would it mean to be a just and a Christian person in today's world? As we look at these six laws, I just have three thoughts or three reflections on what Jesus has done to help us think through our own political responsibilities. First of all, Jesus isn't just about happiness. You know, Jesus is about love and happiness. It's about you being sincere, right? Don't, don't judge me with your ethical principles. Just, I want to know if you're sincere. I hear that in the church. I hear that in um, the mainline churches very often. It's about sincerity. It's about love. And this law, think about this law of divorce. It's from Deuteronomy 24. Moses had said that if a woman had, had anything um, unwanted or offensive to a husband, he should write her a certificate of divorce. And Moses says she shall go away from him, and then she shall not then marry a man and then come back again and marry the first husband or should be guilty of adultery. So Moses doing there. That's the rabbis are, are disputing. In Jesus' own day, a rabbi named Hillel, about 50, 60 years before Jesus, wrote on this and said, well, what's the offensive thing that the wife has to do for the husband to send her away? And the rabbis, they disagree on this, but generally they think, well, anything offensive. And Hillel says, could it be a meal? A burnt dinner? Well, that's something offensive. And so you can imagine Jesus walks in and says, no, no, no. You can't just divorce somebody for something inoffensive. And so this practice had developed in Jesus' days 
of the political elite, the Pharisees, the priests, they just pass their wives along. You have one for a while, you give her a certificate of divorce, which makes her legal, to be passed on to your friend or to the next guy. You're no longer morally responsible for this woman. And Jesus brings this back and says, no, except for sexual immorality, you may not divorce. Now, there's all sorts of debates about what Jesus means by that. And what most people agree is Jesus is simply backing the line way up. I mention this law because in the 60s and 70s in America, much of the church was on the side of no-fault divorce, which means you could come to the courts now and say, we just aren't sincere, we're not in love anymore. And we just backed the line all the way over to, are you happy? A divorce in the Episcopal Church a number of years ago by two bishops. The question was, but are they happy now? No repentance, no sense that a major moral line had been crossed, that a marriage had been shattered, that sheer happiness and sincerity was what was in question. And Jesus would not be with them. He's not in the happiness cult. He's very serious about moral demands. Jesus isn't over here in the happiness cult, nor is he a fundamentalist conservative, if we had to imagine it that way. And this law of the oath may be the closest one. You've heard that it was said, if you make an oath to the Lord, you shall keep it. And a practice developed, this law came from Leviticus 17, that people would take oaths and they would um, come to a certain point and say, well, I didn't make an oath. I didn't say yes, yes. I only said yes. So that wasn't a true oath. And so then this, I only said no, I didn't say no, no. And this kind of duplicity worked itself out in culture that, well, there was, I was being a vow and an oath, but I wasn't a real oath. And Jesus is sort of in the middle of that saying, be truthful among one another. And in this practice, and you know in Mark 10, you have an example, a rabbi or a priest could take a vow to devote themselves to the temple and then their parents would grow old in need. And their parents would call for their help, and the rabbi or the priest would say, no, I've committed myself to the temple. I don't have to care for my parents. And this whole kind of legalism developed around the vow. Well, did you say yes, yes, or yes? Did you give a vow to the temple or not? And Jesus kind of just blows through that. Honor your parents. Say yes or no. But don't build up into the law all these systems and features that you obey and you neglect one another. That's really at the heart of this thing. Jesus isn't um, all about happiness. He's not about legalism that's narrow and fundamentalist. He's about something much richer. And that's what I'm calling us to today. This third thing, what would it look like if Christians kind of got rid of some of the language of the public political sphere that we draw in and think openly, Christianly? Jesus ends very intentionally with this sixth law, love. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor but hate your enemy. It's the only one he quotes wrongly. The Old Testament does not say, hate your enemy. Jesus is exemplifying for them what they've done in abusing a law. The reason the other five are wrong is because you've been wrong about love. You've been wrong about what love does. If you love motivates your approach to the law, then you'll see through to justice. Christians on both sides ought to approach one another in our political parties openly with love, with this question in mind, not what is my political party, but how do I help my neighbor flourish? It's the definition of love. When I'm most satisfied when my neighbor is happy and loved. 
And when I have that view of love, I'll know how to keep the law. And how do I know if I'm being loving? Well, the law helps me know when I'm not. The two work together in Jesus' dialogue. If I'm lying and I'm committing adultery and I'm lusting, then I'm not being loving to my neighbor. But I know how to keep those things because I've studied love. And what is love? The one lays down his life for his friends. That's the image we get in this picture in 1 Corinthians that Paul gives to this divided community. Christ. The crucifixion sits at the middle. If those are your lenses that you put on when you come to your political conversation, how different would it look? Not whose party is going to win the race, but if I care deeply about the flourishing and the well-being and the thoughts of my neighbor, in love, self-sacrificing as Christ was, what would that conversation look like? I read from the law in Deuteronomy 30 today. It was originally our Old Testament reading. This law is not far off. It's not in heaven that you have to say, send someone there to go get it for you. But this law is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Many of you may know, Paul grabs that verse and puts it in Romans 10. And instead of saying this law, he says, this word of faith which we are preaching, Christ Jesus. The law is not the illumining factor. It's Jesus, Paul says. We shouldn't be surprised by that. He's the one standing on the Sermon Mount who helps us, who speaks with us, who walks beside us so that we might be good political agents in our world. May he be our neighbor. May we listen to his words. May we be like him in his love as we bless our neighbors in this world. Amen.